And we are back with another edition of Cellar Dweller Sports featuring K-Dog and G-Mac. Welcome back to the Cellar. Today's topics, we will talk about celebrations in sports, rule changes in sports, and how they affect the physicality and intimidation factor within sports. Then we will go on to our top five sport team names and then finish off with Mets and Yankees spring training camp slash summer camp to finish it off. So the first topic we have is celebrations in sports. Uh, GMAC brought this up earlier this week and uh, was wondering, are they good for the sport? In my opinion, I think they are good for the sport because it brings a personality to each team slash player that deals with uh, celebrations, and I think that it could bring in fans as well. I disagree with the K Dog. I know K Dog loves celebrations, and when he was playing sports, he was very animated playing sports. I personally don't like celebrations. You know, I like athletes like Barry Sanders. Barry Sanders was humble. He would score a touchdown. He handed the football over to the referee, jogged off the field. He did it regardless whether it was a winning touchdown or or in a playoff game. And, you know, I respect that he didn't celebrate because his job is to score a touchdown. So he was doing his job. He didn't show up the other players. And, you know, my, my feeling is that if a Hall of Fame player can be successful with that approach, why can't everyone? Well, there, there's also multiple uh, Hall of Fame players that did like to do like to celebrate. Um, right now, I would say Odell Beckham, a uh, possible Hall of Fame candidate in the future, if he plays the way he still plays. He's one of the most animated players in the league. Uh, celebrations out the wazoo. Every game, he comes up with a new, new celebration to uh, bring his fans in. I think that's why he has one of the biggest followings in social media and could have uh, could have helped him bring in money for him and extended his contract because people gave him attention and it shows that with with tor- touchdowns scored every time he thinks uh, the players around him think that he's better obviously and bringing celebrations into it could help uh, his cause. Well, first of all, I do disagree with you that Odell Beckham is on the path to the Hall of Fame. Uh, he, he is not on the path to the Hall of Fame. Last year's season uh, you know, clearly demonstrates that that, that that wasn't a Hall of Fame season. And you, know, you bring up Odell Beckham, and I think he is what embodies today's professional athlete because it's all about him. He utilizes social media to bring attention to himself. And, you know, I think that's part of today's society. You see it in social media every day where, you know, people are posting different things about their life to try to, to, try to gain attention. Uh, I think football is, is one of the worst for celebrations. You know, these premeditated group celebra- celebrations, you know, as far as I'm concerned, are ridiculous and embarrassing. I think it takes away from the game. And again, it's it's all about me with today's players. Look at me, look at me. I want the attention, and you know, celebrating because they they celebrate because they made a simple play or, or a simple catch. You got a first down, okay, big deal. 
right? You don't need to be taking your helmet off, running around the field, mugging the camera and saying, oh, look at me, look at me. Uh, you know, Odell Beckham, he, you know, when he played against the, the Jets that year, came back to the Meadowlands, you know, he, he was showboating all the time. And, you know, I just think it sometimes can create animosity with his, his teammates, and it certainly creates animosity with the other team. Well, well, when Odell came back to the Meadowlands last year to face the Jets on the Cleveland Browns, he scored an 88-yard touchdown. So I think that deserves to be celebrated in a way. But back to it's all about me. The with the team celebrations, I think it brings in everyone that had to do with that had to deal with the touchdown, including the linemen. Linemen don't get a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, praise and uh, the. The touchdown celebrations that incorporate them could could give them the shine, and it brings the team together. I think, and the the celebrations could help bring the team together, the locker room together. So, yeah, I I I think the celebrations. You know, I just I can't see teams they're celebrating, and they're in last place. You know, you're you're, you're twenty games out of. The playoffs in baseball or you know your season ended in November in football and you're having these premeditated celebrations I think you should be focusing on something else uh, other than celebrating when you score a touchdown and you know you're in last place you should be focusing on how, how do we get better uh, rather than oh I scored a touchdown I still lost you know 21 to 7 we lost the game 21 to 7 but I got this great premeditated celebration but uh, uh, most of the teams that do team celebrations are like the big teams. Uh, one team, for instance, the Chiefs, they always do team celebrations, and they just won the Super Bowl last year. So it could be a morale boost for some, but I agree that most teams that deal with celebrations and they're in last place shouldn't be. For example, the Orioles, if the Orioles have a walk-off home run and they only have 40 wins then what's the point in celebrating at home plate? Well, baseball is is bad, too, and, you know, their celebrations are somewhat ridiculous. When someone hits a game-winning home run uh, during the regular season, they run out there, they mob the player, they throw water with the water bottles all over the player, dousing them with water, throwing their helmets up in the air. You know, I I get it if you – if, if you're Joe Carter and you hit the game-winning home run in the World Series against the Phillies to win the World Series, I get it. You know, you, you can have that huge celebration. But if it's a regular season game, April, May, and then, you know, if you're 20 games out again, so what? You, you won one game and, you know, even... Even our beloved Mets, you know, I don't buy into Pete Alonso ripping off the, the shirt of, of the, the players, you know, if they won in the, the bottom of the ninth inning. I just think it's, it's kind of ridiculous, you know, and the, and the Mets are a team that have had no success in recent history uh, and didn't make the playoffs, yet, you know, they're showboating as, as though they've just won the World Series. And I just think that these players need to temper their enthusiasm and stay focused on the task at hand, which is, which is winning, winning games. Well, I think 
The the Pete Alonso celebrations with the Mets, I think, is warranted. When I went to the game against the Nationals down three in the ninth, and they came back to win, I think that celebration brought everyone together, including the fans, and brought hope to the city that the Mets could possibly make the uh, playoffs. Unfortunately, they didn't. But another thing about celebrations, I think it adds the villain and hero aspect in sports. So the Mets used to play, uh, they still play Bryce Harper all the time, but on the Nationals, he would showboat after a home run against, especially against the Mets, just to get the fans riled up. And I think it brings a good passion uh, between teams and rivalries throughout the sports. I I would agree. At times it brings excitement uh, into the stadium. And uh, certainly that game you reference was an excellent game. Recall watching it at home. Uh, I think that was the game that they beat Dr. Doolittle. Yes. All right. And then they, they beat him up pretty good last year every time he came in. Hopefully uh, they can do that again this year. Uh, I just think that some of the celebrations and the showboating is, is over the top. And, and, again, maybe that's because of today's society. And, you know, you look at social media and everybody's posting you know, uh, everything they do in life to try to get attention, which, you know, I think is is ridiculous again. You know, we, didn't, we haven't talked about basketball and celebrations and basketball, but, you know, basketball is ridiculous too. I mean, these guys are always showboating. You know, they do a slam dunk. They're flexing their muscles. They're shimmying down the court dancing, you know, doing the three symbol. Carmelo uh, and J.R. Smith. yeah. Terrific, right? And uh, it, it just—I I, think—it it shouldn't be about me. And these these the basketball players shouldn't be drawing attention to themselves because it's a team sport. Unless it's singles tennis or unless it's golf, that's all about me. So if you want to be all about me in those sports, go right ahead. But mm-hmm. in these team sports, it. It takes a team to win. And, you know, a lot of these players want the spotlight on themselves. They take it away from their teammates. And it, it I'm not sure it brings camaraderie all the time. And I think sometimes it's uh, divisive among the teams. Well, that's true for golf. I can understand Tiger or Rory celebrating because winning against a field of about 200 players in golf would be insane, especially one of the big majors, including the Masters and the Open. So that could be warranted for celebration, but I think all celebration in sports are great for everyone that is involved with sports. But that brings up the next topic, which is uh, the rule changes in sports uh, on physicality and intimidation. Um, Would celebrations happen if physicality and intimidation were still available to sport players now? Uh, I think there would be a lot less celebrating and showboating. You know, certainly in, in baseball, uh, the rules have had a, a big change with regard to intimidation. Pitchers allowed to pitch inside. You know, they can't pitch inside anymore. So these players hang over the plate they're, you know, they're wearing body armor on their elbows and on their leg and on their, on their foot. 
Uh, so, you know, these pitchers, if they come inside, they get worn, they get hit. Um, you know, so these players, you know, they'll hit a home run, they'll jog slowly around the bases and, and, and showboat. And I think, you know, the rules don't allow pitchers to, um, you know, there's no retribution. There's no fear of retribution. In the, in the old days, you know, in the 70s, you'd have, you know, Bob Gibson. If you showboat on Bob Gibson, you know, you're going to hit the deck the next time up. He was going to dust you. Uh, and, and these players, were, they were going to dust you if you, if you show, showed them up. And I think these, these rules have, have really, uh, you know, in baseball has, has handcuffed the pitchers because they can't pitch inside anymore. These players hang out over the plate and they have no fear because they know they can't pitch inside and they're wearing b body armor uh, to boot. So if they do get hit on the elbow, they feel no pain. Uh, so I think the, the, um, the rules have had an impact uh, on baseball and, and all the sports. Well, I think for baseball, uh, when the, the Mets uh, Chase Utley injured Ruben Tejada during the 2015 playoffs, and Noah Syndergaard tried to get back at uh, Chase Utley by throwing behind his back, and he got immediately thrown out. That wouldn't happen back then, obviously. They would just probably bench-clearing uh, discussion and possibly a brawl, but... Another uh, rule change, another two rule changes is the slide in the second base on a double play. You can't slide as hard now, and catchers uh, can't get run over anymore. So it's it's probably easier for catchers to get uh, the players at home out. And I can understand the, the rule change on the catcher because they're, they're kind of defenseless. These guys are running full speed and barreling into them like a football player. Uh, the, the slide into second base, I'm not sure I, I agree with that ruling. Uh, but, you know, again, it, it's, it's about player safety. Uh, I did like when Syndergaard threw behind Utley. I would have preferred if he drilled Utley. But um, at least he, he sent the message that it wasn't going to be taken lightly uh, with, with that hard slide. And I, I think, you know, as you look at other sports and the changes in other sports, uh, the physical intimidation uh, isn't a significant strategy any longer. Uh, yeah, like in uh, football, the quarter, uh, when you tackle someone, it has to be within the chest region. You can't go for the legs anymore. You can't go for the head, obviously, because of concussions. But this brings up the question, would some players last longer in today's uh, football and maybe fade away faster in like the 80s or 90s per se? Uh, I understand the rule changes, especially as they're trying to minimize concussions. I, I think the rule changes have significantly in football impacted a team's ability to intimidate other teams physically. Uh, you know, you go back to the, the 70s and, and 80s, and those games were vicious, and, and those teams and defenses were vicious. You know, if you, you look back at the uh, 85 Bears, and, you know, they intimidated one of the best defenses around, and they intimidated the other team. You know, they, they, they hit... They weren't headhunters, but they hit 
and they hit hard and they hit QBs too. And and they had, you know, obviously some of the best players, Hall of Famers with Mike Singletary, Richard Dent, Dan Hampton, Steve McMichael in the fridge. And these guys were vicious. They'll tell you they wanted to send a message every time they hit somebody. And they used that physical part of the game to intimidate the other team. You know, we when you were playing football, we'd always talk about that first series is huge. You could intimidate the guy across the line from you in the first series, mm-hmm. and, the, and you had to be physical in that first series. And I think, you know, the rules, and again, I understand it's player safety, have really changed the game. And that physical intimidation isn't in there anymore. Teams would come into Soldier Field in, in 85, and they knew they were in for a rough day of bone-jarring hits and landing on you know the turf at Soldier Field, which basically was a rug over concrete, which uh, couldn't have, have felt good. And you know teams checked out early because they didn't want to get pounded. That is true. Their their offense also was very ferocious and physical as well. So they controlled both sides of the football. One probably the best football team ever, besides the Dolphins that went undefeated that year in '72. Um, but but you know the '85 Bears they couldn't do that now Half the with, stuff with today's now. rules. They they would be they would have been the most most players would be ejected. Fine team in, in in the league. You know, imagine if they hit Tom Brady like they abused the quarterbacks in '85. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to bring up. I was going to bring up uh, what if Tom Brady was a part of the Jets era of the sack exchange era with Klecko and Gassano. I think I don't think he would survive as long as he did now 20 years running. I think he would have been I think he would have faded away faster, probably maybe a 7-year career. I I would agree with you. You know, he he's the greatest of all time of his era, but the era is quite different. You know, in Tom Brady's era, the 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 refs they throw roughing pen- penalties if you breathe on Tom Brady, right? And he's whining all the time. He thinks he's playing touch football most of the time. And, you know, I, I don't think Tom Brady could have played in that era. And it's it's not taking away from all his accomplishments. It just was a different era. You know, in the 85 Super Bowl against the Patriots, they sacked the quarterback seven times. Seven times. Tom Brady doesn't get sacked seven times in a year. Mm-hmm. Imagine if he got hit that many times in one game. Uh, I just don't think that he certainly wouldn't have played 20 years as he has to this date. Uh, and, and I don't think he would have been the quarterback he is today if he played in the 80s. You know, if you had the 85 Bears, then you had the 86 Giants with Lawrence Taylor, Harry Carson. Those guys were vicious, and they they abused quarterbacks too. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that Tom Brady and that it, you know would have been as successful in that era because the rules were a lot different. You weren't getting roughing the the passing on the quarterback if you hit them hard, right? They yeah. they hit them hard, and then they drove them to the ground. Some very yeah, like there was very questionable calls this year. Well, last year, I should say, against Clay Matthews one time. It was a clean tackle. It's just because he pile drove him. Uh, 
it was a 15-yard penalty. I do not think in any sort of way that should have been a penalty, but this brings up the next question. Um, could LeBron, LaFraud, I should say, survive the 80s and 90s as well as players, superstars now like Curry and KD? I think LaFraud, James, LeBron, um, he couldn't. As people think, oh, he's 6'8", 250, they think he could bulldoze through people but during the 80s and 90s the bad boy era the showtime lakers era the celtics era kevin McHale, dennis rodman even magic johnson would probably throw him to the ground and fouls when fouls today are way softer than they were in the 80s and 90s i i would agree with you i think lebron james certainly is a, a physical specimen Big guy, strong guy, very well defined. Uh, however, I don't think that he could have played in the 80s. Uh, and, and again, uh, the, the rules have impacted basketball as well, right? Back in the 80s, you didn't have a flagrant foul. Uh, you know, you, you could drive the lane and you'd get clotheslined. If, if, you've, if you watch the, uh, you know, the Celtics and the Lakers, battle it out in the, in the 80s in the championship games they they were you came into the lane you got hit and you got knocked to the floor it was like a body check in hockey uh, today if you you drive the lane it's like the parting of the red sea no, nobody's nobody's come nobody's no going to challenge yeah. you nobody's going to knock you down you know it's parting of the red sea and you, you get a, a a clear line to the rim uh, I just think that, you know, the, the rules in basketball have changed quite a bit uh, the, but with the flagrant foul rule. And the refs today call too many touch fouls. Uh, you know, the fouls that LeBron, you know, gets and, you know, James Harden, the fouls, these touch fouls that he gets, those wouldn't be fouls in, yeah, in the, in the 80s. Yeah, you can't anymore. You know, they wouldn't be fouls in the 80s. And, you know, with the Detroit Pistons, the, the bad boys of basketball that, you know, were the villains as you as you put forth earlier, you know, you went into the lane, you were getting knocked down by Rodman. You were getting knocked down by Bill Lambeer. And, you know, they, they weren't – you weren't getting to that rim. You were going to get hit. You would – yeah, you would either – be out for the game where you'd go to the line and shoot some free throws uh in the documentary the last dance they talked about uh jordan how they how the pistons made the jordan rules and every time lebron uh, every time jordan drove the lane he would get hacked fouled thrown to the ground just they tortured him every play of every game if rules like if rules like that today were applied to like say lebron or even kd i think they would be intimidated, and the physicality aspect of it, I don't think they could survive a full game. There's no question that the physicality in basketball today is nowhere near what it was in 80s basketball, right? You know, James Harden is not, in the 80s, is not going to the line 40 times in that era. He's just, he's just not, because they're not going to call those touch fouls. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, if you... If you breathe on them, it, it, it's a foul. The, the, and I'm not sure that uh, these guys could have 
they could have played in the 80s. I just don't know if they certainly they I don't think they would have been as effective and would have been as, uh, you know, great superstars as as they are today. Um, I, you know, they just it and it's not necessarily their fault. It's just the, the style of basketball mm-hmm. and the rule changes in basketball compared to what they were in, in the 80s. And, you know, today is a more of a, you know, a three-point shooting contest than it is a, uh, a team game where you're getting the ball down in the post and, and the game is won and lost down, down in the post. Yeah, even big men now are, like, they use them as uh, five-tool players. They, they put them out at the three-point line, shoot threes, uh, Jokic and... Kristaps Porzingis, for example, they are deadly three-point shooters at seven foot three and seven foot, respectively. But back in the '80s and '90s, they they would use team they would use team ball and pass it down into the post. Like Hakeem would back down his opponents. A very physical player, one of the best one of the best defenders slash offensive players in the game. He was an all-around player. He could destroy people in the paint, rebound over them. I don't think Chris Stapps at like 200 pounds, seven foot three, would be able to compete with him. I, I, I would agree. I, I think certainly the, uh, the center position, the five in NBA basketball has uh, changed quite a bit since the 80s where you had big men that were, you know, planted in the paint both defensively and offensively and again it was a post position game, very very physical game that uh, the rules certainly have, have impacted and you know and as a result of these rule changes in all these sports, you know, you, you can't physically intimidate the other team mm-hmm. uh, as part of the game and I, and I think that's a, a lost art because of the rule changes, you know, if you you know, one of the most physical sports aside from football is hockey, right? Mm-hmm. And today's hockey is so much different than the 70s and 80s hockey, uh, which was vicious. I mean, it's not like today's game. Today's game is nowhere near as rough as 70s, 80s hockey was. You know, today's today's game is more European style uh, skating. You know, back then, teams intimidated, and they sent messages by being physical with the body check, but also with with fighting. You know, fighting was an element of the game. You know, as a, I, I think back to the '70s Islanders Flyers games, and I'm, you know, those games were incredible, and I remember how physical and tough those games were, and the and these players were. Back in the 70s when the Flyers were good, 74, 75, you know, their nickname was the Broad Street Bullies, you know, and, and they didn't get that nickname because they were playing European-style hockey. I mean, these guys were nasty. They intimidated teams. You had players like Dave the Hammer Schultz, Don Bird Seleski, Bob Hound Dog Kelly, and, you know, these guys were brawlers. They were physical, they were brawlers. You know, to put it somewhat in perspective, Dave Schultz, uh, he was a nasty guy. In 
during the 74-75 season, he had 472 penalty minutes. 472. So to put that in perspective, the New York Islanders in 2020, and granted they only played 68-70 games, but they only had 559 penalty minutes. He More had, than the whole team. He had 472. And that same year, Don Selesky had 238 penalty minutes. Bob Kelly had 160 penalty minutes. So those three players alone mm-hmm. eclipse the New York Islanders. You know, and Dave Schultz had nine majors, six misconducts. He had five games at least with 10 penalty minutes, 10 penalty minutes. And, you know, that didn't change in the playoffs. Like, like today, the, the game changes. You know, nobody's going to fight. They're going to try to bait you into it so that, you know, you get the penalty. Uh, in the playoffs, it didn't change. I mean, they, they were still fighting and they were still getting a lot of penalty minutes. And, you know, opposing teams, they knew when they were going into the Philadelphia spectrum, that they were they were in for a beating. Literally, they were in for a beating. And, and these teams were intimidated. They didn't want to play the Flyers. You know, and, you know, the Flyers won back-to-back cups during that era. And a lot of it was intimidation and being physical, which, you know, today's game you can't do. And, you know, our beloved New York Islanders, they they were just as physical and, and they could fight with the best of them. And then when these mm-hmm. te- two teams matched up, you know, the New York Islanders had Clark Gillies and Bob Nystrom and Gary Howitt. And Billy Smith, my all-time favorite, uh, and and these guys, they didn't they didn't back down. That the Islanders could not only score, but they could intimidate with physical play and fight with the with the best of these guys. And you know the teams didn't want to go to the Coliseum because they knew they were going to lose. They were either going to lose a finesse game or they were going to lose a, a physical game. Mm-hmm. But you know the Islanders and the and Flyers games in the seventies, those games were. They were insane. They were tough, knockdown, drag-out fights where, you know, you, you would have these bench-clearing brawls and everybody on the would ice fight. was fighting. And, um, you know, today, th- these these teams couldn't play like that today. You know, they, they'd be fine, suspended. Um, and I, I don't think most players today could play in that NHL. Um, you know, nobody is intimidated coming into play the New York Islanders today. I mean... Yeah, Matt Martin, you know, one of their fighters, is not even really a fighter. You know, no, nobody's intimidated by, the, you know, coming into the Coliseum today. Like, teams were intimidated when they went to the Philadelphia Spectrum and when they went into the, the Coliseum in the 70s and 80s uh, because, you know, it's a different game. You, you know, there's really... Hitting, there's not as nearly as much hitting as there used to be in the game. You know, there, there's so many uh, ticky-tack fouls, uh, penalties, I should say, in, in in the NHL today that, you know, it, it's just, it's more of a, a, a freestyle European skating game. And, you know, without that level of intimidation and knowing you're going to come into the spectrum or the Coliseum and say, oh, geez, you know, I can't take any liberties with their good players because I'm going to have Dave Schultz beat me to a pulp mm-hmm. or I'm going to have Clark Gillies beat me to a pulp, right? You know, I, I personally think that 
self-policing via enforcers is good for, for, for the game. You know, these players have no fear of retribution anymore because of the, of the rules, right? Yeah, the and you rules. see all this stick work and, you, and, and um, you know, pe- people are, are taking liberties because they know that they can't go after them. Uh, because because of the rule changes. So, I mean, people were appalled when Ovechkin knocked out the kid from Carolina, all right? But that was nothing compared to the physical intimidation of the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It served the same purpose because at that point, all the air went out of the balloon of the Carolina Hurricanes. And Washington knew they had him at that point because they sent the message. They sent the message that, you know what? You were, we're a tough physical team, and even our superstar is, you know, if you want to drop him, he's going to drop him. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think the rules have changed so much in hockey that that ability to intimidate teams before they even show up into the arena has gone away. That, that is, that's like most sports right now. Um, baseball, obviously. No one throws at anyone anymore. Football, no one tries to defeat anyone because all the the penalties that are given, all the restrictions on tackling, basketball, there is no fighting anymore in sports. Uh, The physicality has changed, and hopefully it could get back to it, but it just seems like it's moving farther and farther away every day. Um, So on to our next topic, we have... Our first edition of the top five. Top five, top five, top five. And this is going to be our top five favorite sport team names. So I'll go first with, I'm a, I like history a lot. So my first one is the Portland Trailblazers. And this is when they founded their team in Oregon, in Portland, Oregon. They decided to name, uh, they had a bunch of team names available, but they decided to n- name the team after the people who discovered the Oregon Trail. A trailblazer is a leader, too, so I think it's a very interesting name and brings a lot of character to their team and the, and the city of Portland as well. Yeah, that's a good choice, Ken Dog. I think uh, the, the trailblazer's name is, is unique, and um, I, I think it fits well with their geography. Uh, staying with the NBA and uh, one of my top five favorite team names, uh, Philadelphia 76ers. I, I really like the Philadelphia 76ers name. It's unique. It's, it's certainly perfectly aligned with the city's histories, uh, history. The colors and the logo are great. And, uh, you know, the name originates, obviously, from the year 1776 when, you know, they signed the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia. But what, what's interesting with their logo is that, you know, the 13 stars above the seven, uh, 13 stars above the circle that are arranged in the circle above the seven represent the original U.S. flag by Betsy Ross. So I think that's a pretty neat tie-in to history. And uh, the Sixers actually started as the Syracuse Nationals, and they moved to Philly in 63, and the team held a contest to name name the team. 
and a, a gentleman, Walt Stahlberg of New Jersey, won the contest, and he was among 500 entrants uh, that participated in the contest to name the Sixers. So I think it's a pretty uh, neat story and uh, certainly one of the best team names in basketball. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. Um, my next my, my next team will be an uh, NCAA team, uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, Running Rebels. The origin of this team name is based off of uh, during the gold mine era of uh, history uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, it was sought to be said that it was being founded by rebels or outlaws of the country, which led to the Wild West of the country and Cowboys, hence the logo of the Running Rebels. I think it's very interesting and another history part of uh, the NCAA and sports in general. K-Dog, that's a good choice. I, I also like the uh, nickname, the Running Rebels, um, and, and certainly... You know, they, they gained a lot of fame under under Jerry Tarkanian when they, they were really successful uh, under his tutelage. Uh, staying with the NCAA, uh, I, I like the Richmond Spiders. I like the, na- the name the Spiders. You know, uh, the, the names that are, that are favorites for me are unique names. Uh, Richmond is the only college in the U.S. with the nickname Spiders, and... Who doesn't fear spiders? So when the, so when they have their mantra, fear the spider, mm-hmm. people typically fear spiders, and arachnophobia is a real thing. Yeah. So if your nickname is the spiders, people are, are fearing you. It's unique. And what's interesting is that Richmond, uh, from 1876 to 1893, was known as the cults. They weren't known as the spiders. They didn't become the spiders until the, the summer of 1894, when a baseball team of Richmond athletes and, and city residents adopted the name Spiders. Uh, they had a pitcher, hmm. Puss Ellison, who you know, was a lanky, had lanky arms and, and a long kick when he was pitching and, and compu- confused the batter so much that sports writers used the name Spider to describe him and the members of the team. And that's how they became they became the spiders. So, uh, you know, I certainly like that name, and it's not because, you know, your sister wants to go to University of Richmond, but I know we have a big following down in Richmond, so I know you're all listening. Uh, if you get her application, put it in the accept file. Yeah, that's a that's a, a interesting history on the spiders. So for th- my next one, I'm going to go into the MLB, and my my team for the MLB is the San Diego Padres. The Padres refers to priests or fathers in the fatherhood of uh, Catholic or Christianity, another history uh, reference in sports. And San Diego was the first Spanish mission where friars, priests, and brothers could go in California and study their religion. So being from St. Bonaventure, a Franciscan school, I think that was pretty interesting. Yeah, that, 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 is, that is very interesting. I like the way you tied it back to the Bonas. And um, certainly it's a unique name, the, the Padres. I, I like it also from a baseball perspective. Uh, my baseball name, I'm going to dip into the minor leagues uh, for my favorite baseball uh, name. So 
I like the name of the Chattanooga Lookouts. Uh, so the Chattanooga Lookouts are AA affiliate of the Reds. Uh, another unique name, and it's, it ties to the region. Uh, the team is named for nearby Lookout Mountain, thus the Chattanooga Lookouts. Uh, love their logo, the big bulging eyes in, inside of the sea. It's great. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Chattanooga means Lookout Mountain in the Creek Indian language. Uh, and they, it, it all, the, the Lookout nickname also stems from the 1800s when travelers were warned by Andrew Jackson's troops to look out for the mountain's dangerous features. And legend has it, it goes back even further to the Cherokee Indians, where they referred to Lookout Mountain and a smaller mountain adjacent to it uh, in Cherokee to mean two mountains looking at each other. So, you know, the, the nickname uh, has, has great relationship with the region. And you know, while I was looking up the how the, the nickname was derived, saw, saw this interesting uh, tidbit about the Chattanooga Lookouts. And in 1931, the Chattanooga Lookouts played the New York Yankees in an exhibition game. And during that game, a 17-year-old girl, Vern Beatrice Mitchell, struck out Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth back to back. That's interesting. Can you can you that's, believe that? Yeah, that's a seventeen-year-old girl. What what a great story. So, you know, it was interesting researching the Chattanooga Lookouts. Love the logo, unique name, fits perfectly with the geography. The Yankee greats getting struck out by seventeen-year-olds. That's that's crazy. And a girl, seventeen-year-old girl. Yeah, that is very crazy. Um, to go on to my next team, I'll go with the NHL, and I picked the. Colorado Avalanche or the Avs. This is um, they base their team name off the mountain, the mountain ranges in Colorado, obviously, and it's based off being on the edge, as the owner said, of the mountains. And a lot of avalanches happen in Colorado, so that ties into their geography. And uh, a fun fact about them is their team is the only team in their division to be in the mountain mountain range time zone while the others are in the central time zone uh, that that's a good fun fact and i like their logo as well ties in well with the avalanche the mountain region and so forth staying with the nhl uh, my favorite nick my favorite team name in the nhl is the vegas golden knights but i have to preface the preface the fact that these are not the real Golden Knights, but we'll get to, to that in a moment. I, I like the name because uh, it's unusual name in pro sports. Uh, the name was derived because the team is owned by Bill Foley. Bill Foley is a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point. You know, West Point's in our backyard. We always root for the Black Knights of the Hudson. Go Army, beat Navy, mm -hmm. right? We, we love the, the uh, Army Black Knights. So Bill Foley named the team the Knights to pay homage to the Black Knights of the USMA, his alma mater. And um, they chose the word golden uh, and because gold is the number one precious metal 
and Nevada is the largest gold-producing state in the country. Mm-hmm. So that's how they included Golden into the into the name, and um, they omitted Loss from the from the name because residents refer to the city as Vegas, and they didn't want a four-word name because they felt that it was too long. Now the real Golden Knights is the name of my alma mater, the Clarkson University Golden Knights, located in beautiful Potsdam, New York. These are the real Golden Knights. The school is known for its excellent engineers and its excellent hockey teams. If you're familiar with NCAA Division I hockey, you will see that both the men and women's teams from Clarkson are perennial powerhouses. The women have won the NCAA championship three times in the, in the past four years. The men are always in the top 10 every single year. I think they were in the top two before the season got washed out through the, to the coronavirus. But again, the Clarkson University Golden Knights are the real Golden Knights. Sorry, Vegas. You know, this, this isn't a new, a, new, a new nickname for a team, but uh, it's still my favorite in the NHL. Yeah, the Golden Knights is a great name. And on to the last team name, which is from the NFL, I went the Tennessee Titans. The, t- the Titans uh, decided to change their name when they were the Houston Oilers back in the day before they joined the NFL. They changed their name to the Titans because it deri- uh, it's derived from Southerners all across the country calling Nashville, the Athens of the South, which is referring to Greece and all the Spartans that fought in Greece uh, during the prehistoric times, BC era. Um, It's interesting because uh, the Titans uh, bringing it to Greece and Spartans, it's just a warrior and it seems like a great team name. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, the Titans is a, is a, a an excellent nickname for a, a football team. You know, it's a sign of strength. A Titan is a sign of strength. So with respect to football and a football team name, I'm going to dip into the collegiate arena here, and um, I'm going to go with the Arizona State Sun Devils. I really love the name Sun Devils. Again, it's unique. Their logo and their colors, I think, are, are excellent. You know, they, they have the hand gesture where they make the pitchfork with their hands. You know, and I know a lot of colleges have the hand gestures, right? You know, yeah. your aunt with the U, she loves to make the U for, yeah. her, her, for her beloved Miami Hurricanes, right? Yeah. And then your cousin is trying to teach us how to do the VT for Virginia Tech, which yeah. always turns out to be TV for me, but we'll eventually get it. Uh, so, you know, we need Coral Gables and Blacksburg to join us in the cellar here, all right? So uh, when you're listening, join us in the cellar. But uh, getting back to the Sun Devils, the, 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 originally in 1898, they were called the Normals because the school was the Tempe Normal School. And uh, Normal is an old-fashioned term for a teacher's college which taught teaching norms. Then the school changed its name to the Bulldogs. Uh, And then in 1946, they changed to the Sun Devils and they introduced the uh, devil mascot, Sparky. So the name was suggested by the Sun Angel Foundation 
and in 46 and that's how they changed their name and the mascot Sparky was actually created by a Disney am animator named Burke Anthony and uh, also like Arizona State because of Herm Edwards you know love Herm Edwards sorry mm -hmm. he was a Jets coach you know had to suffer through that but I wish we had him as a Jets coach now instead of Adam Gase but you know uh, so that's another fire gaze. yeah fire gaze but that's another reason why you know I like the Sun Devils I like Herm Edwards and, you know and our, our giant friends also like Herm Edwards because Herm Edwards was the one, you know, was was part of the miracle of the Meadowlands, right? This is the Joe Pisarczyk handoff to Larry Zonka, fumbled it. Herm Edwards picked it up, went to the house, and, you know, the, the Philadelphia Eagles beat the Giants in the miracle of the Meadowlands, yeah. right? So our giant fan friends love Herm Edwards as well. You know, and maybe we'll have your grandfather on the show because he was at the miracle of the Meadowlands, and he can tell us all about it. Yeah, that is that's interesting. All uh, those were our top five teams, uh, favorite team names from multiple sports. Uh, for our last topic, we are going to go over the Mets and Yankees inter squad scrimmages. Um, the Mets Mets started uh, the Mets in inter squad scrimmages. Uh, they're looking pretty good. the The people that I see that have perf performed pretty well during these times are Michael Waka. He had a terrific performance in uh, the telecast uh, the other day for four no-hit innings, and he would have had four perfect innings if it wasn't for Dom Smith's error at first base. Uh, next one is Ahmed Rosario. He's getting hits left and right, had a, had a home run the other night. And uh, another performer that looks to be ready to go for the season is Ioannis Cespedes. I think he could take this team to the, the level that they need and possibly bring playoffs to the Mets this year. Well, I'm really excited about tonight's uh, Mets-Yankees preseason game. You know, look forward to uh, listening to Keith. Maybe he'll talk about Haji while we're watching the game. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in advance of the game, you know, going back to the, the Mets' most recent inter-squad game, as you said, K-Dog, uh, Michael Waka was exceptional. Five-plus innings, one base runner, four strikeouts, no walks, perfect for most of the game. You know, his curveball was really sharp. Last year, he, he struggled with his curveball, and batters were hitting 471 off his curveball last year. So I think he could certainly be a significant uh, key player in, in this coming year. He's incentivized. He has a one-year deal, heavily incentive-laden. So I think that he could be a big pickup for the Mets, you know, in light of Syndergaard being out. And they're going to need as much pitching as they can get, obviously, because uh, pitching wins. But uh, Ahmad Rosario, you know, he had another – he had a good game uh, in the last inter-squad game, hit a home run off of Stroman. You know, uh, he, he could be – you know, he could be an all-star. If you look at his, his numbers from last year, he hit 281, had three doubles, 15 homers. Those are all-star numbers. Yeah. So, you know, with the DH this year, I don't know if Rosie's going to be hitting in the ninth, ninth position or what, but, you know, this is a huge advantage for the Mets. And I think having the DH, that they have a lot of position depth, and the DH will help them get 
people into the game like Dom Smith. You know, Dom Smith yeah. had a, an, another excellent game, hit another home run off of Stroman. You know, where is Dom Smith going to play? Where is he going to get his playing time? They got to get him in there. Yeah, that is true. Another person that performed pretty well during these inter squad scrimmages was our catcher, uh, Wilson Ramos. He hit a home run off Tyler Bachelor, but Bachelor obviously isn't up to standards for Met fans as he's given up tons of runs. But anyways, Ramos looks to be ready to go for the season, performing well. Um, on the other side of the on the other side of the city, the Yankees had also inter squad scrimmages. Uh, for my performers that look ready to go for the season, uh, Gio Urshela had multiple home runs, hitting the hitting the lights out of the ball. J. A. Happ had a pretty good outing. Uh, the one time that I watched them, Glaber Torres, as usual, always ready to go in fielding, is terrific hitting, spot on as always. And Miguel Andujar, the third baseman as well, looks pretty good to go, taking a home run off uh, Garrett Cole in last night's performance. Yeah, it was enjoyable watching last night's uh, Yankees intra-squad game. Uh, Certainly focusing on Garrett Cole. Uh, He did okay, did okay. 82 pitches, five and two-thirds innings, two runs. You know, he gave up back-to-back bombs to Mike Ford and Miguel Andujar, uh, but his run line was four hits, seven Ks. He struck out the side in in one inning. Uh, but it was a, it was an okay start. You need better for your number one. You know, it was kind of like a Noah Syndergaard pitching line. Um, good, not great. I think, you know, I think the, the Yankees are stacked with position players and, and young talent, you know, uh, Gia Urshela hit a hit hit a, a dinger. Uh, Estrada hit his third home run of camp. So you know he's going to be someone that that you got to look at. Uh, Stanton and Judge uneventful game last night. At least they didn't get hurt. So you know they're they're still in the lineup. But uh, Stanton didn't look good at the plate. Was roll, you know, rolling the ball over. I think um, you know the Yankees if they can get solid pitching they'll be in it they'll be serious contenders because mm-hmm. their their lineup their position player lineup is just nasty yeah the only thing that scares me for Garrett Cole is the past performances uh during spring training and summer camp that I've watched he's given up home runs left and right hopefully he could take that down during the regular season and Yankee fans will be happy once he comes back to his Astros performance level um I think you're right, Judge and Stanton are they? They're not showing up during uh, summer camp so far. Uh, they they need Judge and Stanton to get better. They need home runs out of them. I know they hit back to back home runs that one day, but that was they they're strikeout machines. Stanton especially, he's been a strikeout machine since his days as Mike Stanton in Florida with the Marlins. But if they could get those guys on the right track, they will be serious contenders and very scary for the NL East and the AL East especially. I would agree with you. And, you know, the Yankees get LeMayhew back. I don't know when he's going to see action, if he'll be ready for opening day, but they, they get him back. Um, talking again a little bit about the Mets, you know, um, Marcus Stroman, inconsistent. Yeah, he's been in- inconsistent very inconsistent again, lately. You know, Last year he was inconsistent when he came over from the Jays. 
he always seems to have one bad inning that defines his start. You know, last year his ERA was 3.77 with the Mets. He gave up eight home runs in 59 innings, which is uh, concerning because he's showing that same uh, propensity to give up the home run. He gave up two home runs to Rosario and Dom Smith in the intra-squad game. You know, this is his walk year. He's a free agent. He's playing for a contract, uh, and he's going to have to pitch better, and the Mets are going to need him to pitch better because if they think he's the number two, he's not pitching like the number two. Not right now, and especially going back to last year, it it's, it looked like jitters as it, as it was his first time as a New York Met, uh, one of his uh, old-time favorite teams as a young kid. So maybe it was the jitters, but it's looking inconsistent as of now. But the scrimmage uh, that's happening tonight when we're recording, uh, Rick Porcello is going to make his debut with the Mets against the Yankees. So we get to see how Porcello performs. And Cespedes will be going back-to-back days, DH and possibly left field tomorrow, Sunday. Uh, So we get to see how all these players get to perform, especially Stanton on the Yankees side and Urshela. They they seem to be uh, the key performers. Obviously, we know Glaber is going to perform as well as he does. He could be MVP uh, caliber player this year. So we get to see the new players for the Mets and the old players for the Yankees, see if they can improve. It'll be interesting tonight. All eyes will be on Rick Porcello. Uh, the Mets are going to need him to step up. They're going to need him and Waka to give him significant quality innings uh, in order for them to be successful. Looking at the Mets lineup tonight, you know Brandon Nimmo leading off, Pete Alonso up second, Robinson Cano back in camp hitting third, Cespedes, you know number four, which you know K Dog you keep talking about is is the wild card for the team. You got Conforto hitting fifth. J.D. Davis hitting six, Rosario seventh, um, Moroff hitting eighth, and then uh, Nito hitting ninth. You know, you, you got to think about where you're going to put Dom Smith, K-Dog. That is true. Uh, well, if Cespedes, say, plays left field one day, he could Dom Smith could come in on the DH, and then we could put possibly J.D. at third, Right now, McNeil's not in the lineup, but they said uh, he's playing tomorrow. Ramos is also playing tomorrow, they said. So we got to – it's a deep lineup this year, and we just got to find a way to put everyone in. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking, you know, you put uh, J.D. Davis at third and you put Dom Smith in left field. Uh, and, you know, he could also be the DH for you. Uh, from time to time, but if, if he continues to show the bat that he's been showing, you got to get him in. You got to get him in the lineup. Now the Mets are are facing Michael King tonight for the Yankees, so the Yankees really aren't showing, you know, they're big guns. They're, they're big pitchers, right? Michael King, uh, you know, he's a career minor leaguer. 2019, he had four games at the AAA level, three and one, 4.18 ERA. You know, he's 25 years old, right-hander out of Boston College. So I'm not really sure how he factors in the Yank season this year. Uh, but, you know, he should be somebody that the, this Mets lineup should be able to handle. You know, and hopefully this is the start of, uh, you know, 
a productive season and they gain confidence against Michael King. Yeah, that is that is true. Uh, the season starts next Thursday, Washington and Yankees and Dodgers and Giants on that Thursday, a doubleheader on ESPN. It's but that's it from the cellar today, and here's hoping that our teams get out of the cellar soon. <laughs>